Well, the title of this morning's message is In Christ, In Christ. And you'll see that we're going to get that from our text here this morning. But as I was thinking about our topic, I had to think about kind of how do you get to that? How do you get to this place where you could be described positionally as being in Christ? Well, and it starts with a series of things. It starts with God creating you to begin with. And as God created you, he created you with a volition. Now, a volition is just a fancy word for the ability to make choices or the ability to exercise free will. And as it relates to spiritual matters, the central decision involves accepting or rejecting him. So God made you. He gave the ability to choose him or to reject him. Called that a volition. Gave you the ability to make that decision about whether you would put your faith and trust and dependence on him or you would reject him, rebel against him and say, I don't need you. I'm going to put my confidence in myself or something else or someone else besides you. Now that decision plays out and can be described in many different ways in terms of the spiritual decisions to accept or reject him. You have the ultimate decision to exercise your volition as it relates to putting your trust in God's provision to deal with your sinfulness, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But then you have an ongoing series of decisions to make about each moment of every day. Am I going to be willing to put my trust in what God has provided for me, how God is directing me, or am I going to seek to lean on my own understanding? Am I going to seek to, again, do my own thing? And so that same decision plays out at a point in time where am I going to put my confidence and trust in the finished work of Christ so that I'll be born into God's family, that I would be saved from the hell I deserve to a heaven I don't, and then the ongoing decisions to am I going to be willing to trust God to save me from the influence of sin, the temptation of sin, the bondage to sin, the attack of the evil one, the enemy within and the enemy without, am I going to trust God to give me victory over that? Now that I am his child, am I going to appropriate by faith the resources that he makes available to me because I see myself positionally as in Christ. I'm his child and I see that without him, I can do nothing. So you think about these different ways that volition plays out in the Christian life. Now, in order to exercise a volition, you have to have choices or options available to you. It wouldn't be a volition or a choice if there were no options available. So God doesn't force you to believe in him. He doesn't force you to trust in him. He doesn't force you to depend on him. He doesn't force you to accept him or follow him. But he does promote and encourage that choice without violating your free will. See, God desires that you would choose him in each of those ways. You would choose to believe him. You would choose to trust him. You would choose to depend on him. You would choose to accept him. You would choose to follow him. You would choose to involve him. You would choose to lean into him in your life. And his spirit is undertaking to draw men, not some men, all men, to himself so that men would choose, make choices, volitional choices to say, I can't do this apart from you. I'm going to incline my eyes and my gaze and my focus and my dependence back on you. So he promotes and encourages that, again, without violating your free will. You have options. You have options. But the choices that you make are critical to your spiritual well-being. Sometimes we think about the options in front of us and they're always choose life or choose death. Now, we're not talking, there's a point in time where we're saying choose life in terms of eternal, positional life. 
or choose death in terms of eternal positional death. But you recall that one of the things that, one of the last things that Moses ever said to the nation of Israel, maybe you recall this passage from Deuteronomy, one of the last things Moses ever said to the nation of Israel as he was dying, he had a deep love and concern for these people that, frankly, they hadn't, they'd caused them some gray hair, probably caused them to lose his hair. He's probably balding like I am. So, as that was happening, though, he developed a great concern for them. He gave, gave up his life for them in many ways, investing in the well-being of this people. Now, did he always do it with the right motives? Did he always do it as unto the Lord? No, for sure not. But was that his heart's desire to have a concern and a compassion for these people? And the answer is yes. So now he's dying. And you think of all the things he could have talked about, and he talked about quite a few things. But one of the main things is, we had a study on Deuteronomy, one of the main things is he talked about, you got a choice to make. He's, he's saying, remember what God has done for you in the past, and I'm reminding you of all these things, because you see that apart from Him or apart from trusting Him, there is no life. There's no future for you unless you'll learn to depend and trust in God. So He says, I put in front of you today, I lay in front of you today a choice between life and a choice between life and death. That's the choice that's in front of you. You have to choose. Choose life or choose death. But the choice of life, he wasn't talking necessarily about positional life in terms of the penalty that man faced for his sins. He was talking to a nation of faith about a day-to-day practical appropriation of the life that was possible through dependence and faith in God, resting in God, to direct and undertake and provide for man what man could not provide for himself. So each day, he says, I'm effectively laying in front of you, I'm putting in front of you this choice to make between life and death. What will you choose? And, that, and that's your part in this. You talk about volition. God is saying, I put in front of you a choice between life and death. There's the moment in time choice to accept the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And at some point in time, I hope you made that choice to trust in Jesus as the only solution to deal with your sinfulness and the debt that you owed and the death that you were facing. You saw Jesus as the complete work, the complete accomplishment or solution to the need that you had being estranged from God and that Jesus brought you near to God through the blood of himself having shed his blood in your place and that through faith in his death burial and resurrection on your behalf you were reconciled to God you were given life that you didn't have before positionally I hope you made that decision that's not a decision that's made over and over again a child is born once physically a child is born once spiritually there comes a time where you have to make a decision am I going to put my faith in what Jesus did for me or am I not now if you did There's a series of days left in front of you before the Lord calls you home, either through death or perhaps he'll come today and rapture us all away. A series of days, a series of moments in front of you. And that's the volitional aspect of this. Now you have to choose in those moments. Will you choose life or will you choose death? But back to my point about volition, there has to be choices available. There have to be options but the choices that you make, they're just not, they're, they, they have consequences associated with them. When you choose yourself instead of choosing God, there's a consequence associated with that in time and in eternity. Your spiritual well-being is on the line. Now, we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're going to get into that a little bit later here today. We're talking about this idea that I'm not going to experience the abundant life that God has in front of me in the days and the moments when I choose to do life apart from Him instead of leaning into Him, instead of including Him, instead of trusting Him. 
I'm going to miss out on the life that he has for me. I'm not going to really be experiencing life at all. And some of you have lived life there where at some point in the past you put your faith in what Christ had done for you. That moment you were born into God's family. He said, I'll never let you go. I'll seal you with my spirit. And then after that, so you had that assurance that I'm God's child. Then after that, though, you had a lot of life to live. And some of you obviously have been in places, just like I have, where you were in a place that said, I don't really need God. I'm not going to prioritize God in my life. I'm not going to trust him. I'm not going to let his spirit work in and through me. I'm going to do this my own way, on my terms, through my own strength. And how successful was that? How happy were you in those moments? How fulfilled, how fulfilled were you in those moments? How abundant was life in those moments? And I think to a person, we could testify that in those moments when we're doing that, we're rejecting and rebelling against God, it's not the abundant life. It's not a life that's filled with perfect peace and fullness of joy like God says is possible in his presence when we're leaning into him and enjoying intimate fellowship with him. So then you think about if choices are important, the exercise of your volition is important, there have to be options and choices available to you, they're critical to your spiritual well-being, well then naturally the Bible frames your options in language language of alternatives and contrasts. The Bible talks about the different options that are available to you, and it always kind of positions them one against the other. This idea of it's this or it's that. It's one or the other. And so by framing it in in the language of alternatives and the language of contrasts, you get the sense of I could go either way with this, but it's one or the other. You can't have it both. And here's just a couple of examples. It's believe or do not believe. Those are the two options. Now, are there consequences associated with either one? Yes. How about walk by faith or walk by sight? Are these two options available? Yes. Are they alternatives? Yes. Are there consequences associated with whichever one you would choose? How about walk by means of the Spirit or walk under the influence of the flesh? Walk just meaning live by means of or a manner of living that's influenced by either the Spirit or your flesh. Now, are there consequences associated with with those choices, whichever one you would choose? Or how about seek the things that are above or love this present world? Seek the things that are above or love this present world? Now there's consequences associated, but both options are available to the believer. Another one would be to trust the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the alternative? Lean on your own understanding. So trust the Lord with all your heart or lean on your own understanding. Now, are there consequences associated with those choices? Yes, in time, there are. There are consequences in time and then ultimately even in eternity in terms of the doctrine of rewards. See, spiritual well-being or success is always tied to one option and spiritual failure to the other. So they're contrasted. The Bible comes up with these pairs of contrast and one is always tied to being successful in your spiritual walk, having spiritual health, and the other is always tied to spiritual failure or, I guess, if, being, if you're unhealthy, being spiritually unhealthy. Now, one significant contrasting set of options involves your spiritual identity. Who are you going to see yourself as identified with? What, what are you going to see as your personal identity? And when you talk about your spiritual identity, the two options that are available are you're either going to be identified or see yourself as in Adam or see yourself as 
in Christ. Now that can be true position, that can be true positionally, that can be true practically, and we'll touch on that a little bit here today. So the Paul, the prayer of Paul, we're in a series here on Paul's prayer that we're going to touch on. It represents the most comprehensive biblical exposition regarding what being in Christ personally entails, or sorry, positionally entails. So if you haven't turned there already, we're going to look at this this morning. This section, which we're not going to get through at all, this is just going to be part one here today, but this prayer of Paul is so loaded with a theological explanation of how critical it is to be in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, instead of remaining in Adam, which is the default for all of mankind. And here in these verses, which Don again touched on already this morning, these verses have such a complete and deep description of what being in Christ is all about. Now, I want you to know this as we look at this, if you're, some of you are probably getting there, Ephesians 1, 3, but when you look at this section from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, that, that's one sentence in Greek. It's one sentence. It's said to be possibly the longest sentence that is even available or on record in the Greek language. So it's broken up into more than one second, more than one sentence in English, but this is all one thought from verse 3 all the way through the end of verse 14. Now think about, you talk about a grammar, a grammar nightmare. Talk about a run-on sentence. Some of you kids are like, man, I could never get away with this in English in school. But this is all one sentence. So let's just start by reading this whole section. Again, we're not going to cover it all, but just so we have the context, let's read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's your first description of being in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, there's another, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame and before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And that's, Lord willing, what we're going to get through this morning. Now, verse 7, in him, in reference to Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. There we have the position or the identity of being in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him again. In him, there we have it again, verse 11, also we obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ, how do you get a hold of this? You trust in Christ, should be placed, should be to the praise of his glory. In him again, you also trusted. Now there's the key. The Bible always puts the focus of salvation on your decision to trust God, to accept by faith, to believe in what God made possible through the work of his son. It's that simple. No matter where you look, you're going to find believe, believe, believe. Faith, 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 faith. Trust, 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 trust. In him you trusted. Now how did you trust in him? After you heard 
the word of truth, meaning there is value to sharing the good news of Jesus with people because how are they going to believe in one whom they have never heard of? They have to hear of him first. So you heard the word of truth. Now what was that message? It was the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed, how did you get in, get in on this? You had to believe it. So having believed what happened, now God does his part, your part believe, his part, he seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise. You don't seal yourself. You don't preserve yourself. You don't maintain yourself. He seals you the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what is the Holy Spirit then? He's the guarantee. Does that sound certain? Yeah, he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Meaning, he's the down payment. God put his spirit inside of us as a down payment of our future inheritance in heaven, which is sealed by God, not by you and I. What an amazing passage. We'll get into it more. I don't have time. I already spent too much time on stuff we're not even covering this morning. But there's our section for today. So let's start with these first couple of verses here, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now here we have it in Christ, our identification, our positional standing in Christ. And this prayer provides another example of a doxology or a prayer of praise. This is a prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's going to be a long explanation of why he should be praised, why he should be lifted up, lifted up. but this starts by saying God deserves to be praised, exalted, or blessed. Then Paul highlights God's complete provision for man as the basis for praising him. And he's going to talk about God's provision of this newfound position or this newfound identity being in Christ, being identified with the finished work of Christ, how his righteousness was credited to my account so that through faith in him I become a part of the body of Christ. I stand in his shoes. I'm now identified with him. The righteous one, the one who God can look at and say, I can accept you now on the basis of your identification with the perfection of my son, though I could never accept you on the basis of your identification with the race of sinners that started with Adam. See, when we were identified with Adam, by one man sin had entered into the world and then death came with sin and then death spread to all men. Because all sin. It's by one man, though, Adam, that this all started. And I'm a relative of his. So the idea is that if I'm born dead in trespasses and sins, I'm born by birth. I I have a natural tendency to rebel against God. I inherited that. I came by it honestly. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, in a sense. And then I had choices to make. And I chose to reject God. I chose to sin. I chose to do things that violated God's standard of what was right. That caused me to be identified with a race of sinners. And why was that a problem, friends? It was a problem because if I'm identified with a race of sinners and God is identified as perfect righteousness or holy, without blame, without sin at all, if God's holiness couldn't endure while at the same time being mixed with my sinfulness... Then I remained, I was in a position where I found myself estranged from God, separated from God on the basis of my identification with sinfulness. So that's the good news of the gospel, that God saw me in my time of need, separated 
from him because of my sin. And he said, I need to make a way for you to be with me because I desperately love you. So though while I'm holy and though while I'm fair and just, I can't overlook sin that would violate my just character. There was a debt that was owed for sin. It was to remain separated from God. The Bible calls that death. So I was in a position that wasn't too good. The wages of sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, is death. God says, I'm going to make a way. I love you so much, I'm going to have to deal with that. There was only one way. The penalty of sin was death. Death for sin. Death, sin was separating me from God, so there's only two choices. There's really one choice. Somebody has to die. That's, that's the fact. Somebody has to die in order for that debt to be satisfied. So the choice was either this. Either I was going to have to die, which I deserved, or somebody else was going to have to take my place. That's the message of the Bible. Not how I can make myself acceptable to God, but how God saw me in my time of need. And he said, I'm going to send a solution. I'm going to send a substitute to die in your place so that you don't have to die, so that you can experience eternal life with me. So he sent his son to become sin for me, to take and bear my sins on a cross as he died crying out, I love you this much. And as he bore my sins in his own body on the tree, he dealt with the problem that I had, that I was facing. But he didn't deal with it partially. He dealt with it completely and he cried out, it is finished. All of my sin, past, present, and future, all of your sin, past, present, and future, was laid on the son. And the son died for that sin. So for me to say that his work was inadequate or it was incomplete or I need to now finish what he started is a slap in the face to God who, Jesus who on the cross cried out in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He endured the equivalent of all of your death at the same time, dying in your place because he loved you so much. And the only thing he says is, will you, will you put your trust and your confidence in that? Will you accept by faith, will you believe in the solution that I made for your sinfulness and give up on any other human solutions that religion or anyone else would teach you about? See, if you realize that it was all about him and what he's done, the moment you accept the solution he offers and you say, yeah, I'll take it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. I say, I'll take that gift. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. Yeah, I'll take that gift. The moment that you do that, meaning just I'll trust that, I'll put my confidence in that, God says that moment, your debt is now satisfied. I mean, the death for sin already occurred, but the, the payment hadn't been appropriated to my account until I believed in it. So the moment I believed in it, Christ's blood, his offering, his sacrifice, was applied to or credited to my account. I became clothed then in the righteousness of God as his righteousness was imputed to me or credited to me. So now God could look at me not because of my works, not because of my perseverance, not because of how hard I was trying, but because of my faith in his finished work and having accepted that, he can look at me and he says, I see that you're now clothed in my son's righteousness. Now I can have a relationship with you. I can have a relationship with you in time and I can have a relationship with you for all of eternity. But you see, as you think about the things that are worth praising God about, it starts with this idea that God has made a way for me to have access to God and to resolve my greatest need. And so you think about who is worthy of praise. 
Who is worthy of praise? Well, it's God alone. He deserves to be praised and exalted and blessed. Not because I have to do that, because that's the only reasonable response to seeing how great his love was for me and how great his provision was for me. So as Paul highlights God's complete provision for man as the basis of praising him, it obviously starts there. So he then moves on to in addition to God making it possible for me to be called a son of God, to be born into his family, to have access to eternal life through faith in his finished work, God then undertook to make possible for me a way of living and a manner of living where I could be identified now with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, instead of being identified with or seeing my position as being in Adam. And so he starts off and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what has he done? And this is what he's going to focus the rest of the passage on is all the different things that God has done that are worthy of praise. So he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And the idea here is God has bestowed the benefits or gifts necessary for spiritual success. The expression is expansive, covering all the good that comes to us by grace. God has blessed us with everything necessary for spiritual success, and it's a wide-ranging idea that Paul has. He's not trying to be overly specific here. Everything you need, God has given you. He's given you the power of His Spirit. He's given you the indwelling of His Spirit. He's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you a family of other believers. He's given you his word. He's given you access to him by prayer. He's given you this newfound standing in the family of God as a son of God. He's given you, again, his spirit living inside of you. He's given you direction. He's given you purpose. He's given you a mission. All of these things that God has done for you. And you see that word every? It indicates that there's nothing lacking in God's provision. And as you look at, he has blessed. It indicates that this already occurred as it relates to these believers. Who is Paul writing to here? He's writing to believers. He's not writing about how you can get saved. He's talking to them about reflecting upon what God has done for them as a basis for praising him with their prayers and praising them in their lives. And the idea is because God already provided these blessings, you need not ask for them, but simply accept them and appropriate them in your life and then praise Him for blessing you with them. You already have them. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now when you talk about this phrase, in heavenly places, it refers to the source of these gifts or blessings. These blessings are not sourced in the material world. They are spiritual. They're not material at all. They are eternal. They're not temporal. That's the kind of blessings these are. They fade not away. Now that phrase actually talks about things that we set uh, set aside in terms of worthwhile things that we can do in life, treasures that we would set aside in heaven. But in terms of God's blessings, they never change. They never go away. They never expire. They never run out. It's based on God's faithfulness. He's an infinite God. So there's an infinite, there's no end to this. It's like the pool of resources never runs dry. You just keep going back to it over and over again. The question isn't, are the blessings available? The question is, will you appropriate those blessings? Can you consider, you talk about these blessings that you have to make spiritual success or make your spiritual life 
possible. Imagine having access to that great wealth, but never tapping into it. Some of you are probably struggling with financial matters. Imagine continuing to go through life struggling with financial matters when in fact you have a great storehouse of wealth available to you. Would you just go withdraw from it? Were you to just go and make a withdrawal withdrawal from that account, appropriate the riches you already have, you wouldn't be struggling the way you are. Now take, that's a financial application. Take an emotional application where you're struggling emotionally, things that you're missing, things that you need, things that you desire in your life you don't have. Imagine they were available, but you just wouldn't go sign them out, check them out, take a withdrawal. Consider any other category, right? And, and imagine doing that. Well, that's what God is saying. You have this storehouse, this treasure that's been given to you of all these blessings. Would you appropriate them in your life? These are not going anywhere. They're secured. They're heavenly. They're the heavenly kind of thing. They're eternal. They're not going away. Now, in Christ, that's our last word here in the title of our message. Now, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this phrase, in Christ. It refers to how they were made available or accessed. How do you get a hold of this? It's because of your identity in Christ, which is accessed, as I've already discussed, by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ. The moment you put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you're now described positionally as, my standing is no longer in Adam. I'm now a child of God. And that's your identity. That's a fact. Your, your identity is a fact. It's not a feeling. Okay? Your identity, who you are, that's a fixed fact. This is who you are. You're a son of God. Doesn't matter if you realize that. Doesn't matter if you're comfortable with it. Doesn't matter if you like it. Doesn't matter if you're acting like it. Doesn't matter if you're living like it. You're a son of God. That's your newfound identity. Praise the Lord, huh? A child of God. And, and the question is, are you going to appropriate all of the blessings that come with that? The direction that comes with that? The purpose, the mission that is associated with that? So it's through Christ that these blessings were accessed because the moment of faith we became, now we were born into the family of God, we become God's child and we were blessed with these blessings all because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now this is the first of 12 times this phrase or its equivalent is used, 12 times just in this, in, in this passage. You see it's Christ's work that secured the victory and made these blessings possible through faith the believer becomes identified positionally with Christ and is given everything needed to grow and thrive spiritually. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm struggling with my faith, it isn't because God has let you down. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Everything you need to thrive spiritually in this life has already been given to you by virtue of your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You already have access to The question isn't, has God let me down? The issue is, will I trust him enough to appropriate by faith the victory that God has made available for me? Not through my strength, but through the strength of his spirit working inside of me. Now we move to verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now this verse is a 
difficult verse in the sense that there's been a number of different ways people have taken this. But as we get into it, we see that just as, it just continues the previous thought. Not only, that's the way you could think of it, not only did God bless believers through their identification with Christ with every spiritual blessing, but God also determined to corporately assign them, meaning all believers, a mission, a purpose. He gave them a purpose. And we'll get into that mission a little bit more in a bit. And you have this phrase, he chose us. He chose us. And specifically, he chose us in him. So it's not just he chose us, he chose us in him. And a couple of general observations about this word chosen, it's also translated as elect. But a couple of observations about being chosen or elect. The majority of times this word is used, it refers to believers being chosen for a particular purpose. The predominant usage is collective, not individual. It doesn't say he chose me or he chose you. It's he chose us corporately. That's the predominant usage. You note the plural usage even here. He chose us, and then you see a little bit farther down that we, and then he talks about what the mission is. He chose us for some mission. Now, the word does not carry any implicit concept of selection from a larger group of candidates. In fact, it never refers to being chosen for salvation out of a group of others who were not chosen. So some people take this as a reference to this idea that God in eternity past, he looked at the pool of what he knew would become humanity. He looked at that pool of humanity, and he looked at the pool of humanity, and he arbitrarily started throwing darts and selecting or choosing specific individuals out from the pool of humanity that he says, I'm going to choose this one for salvation. Choose, 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 choose. I'm going to choose that individual for salvation. Now, of course, the default of that would be if he chose these individuals for salvation, then he chose the rest of them by default again for what? for damnation or condemnation. Now, I, I would just challenge you, try to square that with a concept that God is fair, that God is just, attributes that he has, that that, that would be righteous, that that would seem right. Pre- present that message to a group of toddlers and ask them if they think that that would seem fair or just. That on just the basis of looking at humanity, he would say, I'm going to choose these individuals, but I'm not going to choose these other individuals. That's not what the word refers to. That's not even the idea that's referring to. He's already writing to believers, a corporate group of believers, and he's trying to tell them what God's purpose was in putting them into Christ. He's saying each person who chose to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ was placed positionally into Christ. Now he's going to say, now that you're in Christ collectively as this chosen group of individuals, this church of Christ, I have a purpose or I have a meaning or I have a, I have a calling for you. I have, I have a mission that I want to assign you. But it never carries this idea of choosing some for salvation and choosing others for damnation. Now, what does it mean? It means that God chose to save all who choose to believe in his son. God chose to save all who choose to believe in his son. Now, these are difficult concepts. 
Very difficult because on one hand, does God know in advance? Is he all-knowing? Does God know in advance who would respond to his offer of salvation? Yes. But did he choose them to do that? Did he make it so that they would do that? He does it in a way where he can know outcomes without determining those outcomes or violating free will. God gave man choice. The Bible is filled with choices that men are given and men are asked to make a choice. The Bible is not filled with theology of God forcing choices on mankind. The Bible is filled with God making available to how many men? All men opportunities to respond in faith to the provision of God for them. He doesn't selectively make that available to some and not others. He makes it available to all and he says, my will, my, my de- desire would be that you would all respond. But some do and some don't. God doesn't make them though. Otherwise, he would be violating man's choice. He would be acting in a way where he would be a puppet master who attached strings to certain people and made them do certain things. He doesn't do that. That's not how God operates. And so as we think about it, God, he chose to save everyone who chose to believe in his son. His plan of salvation was simple. I have made a way where I want to save mankind. I'm not going to force it on them then, though, so I'll save everyone who decides to put their trust in the finished work of my son. And I'll tell you this, it could be you. That could include you. Now, if you believe that the only way you could be saved is if God chose you, then you'd be sitting there saying, maybe that's not even available for me. Because if God didn't choose me, then I'm not even capable of responding to this message. It's only because God chose me that I could respond to it. It starts to be spinning your head around in circles, but the reality is that's not the message of the Bible. I'll share a few verses with you in a bit that really show that God's approach, his offer of salvation was made to all men. God couldn't have done that or wouldn't have done that if he knew that salvation wasn't even impossible for all men. So you have to have a balance between God's sovereignty and man's free will or man's free choice, and God is the one who can understand it more completely than we can, but God somehow can know how things turn out without determining those outcomes or violating free will in the process. Now God, the second part of this, what does it mean when it says he chose us? God chose to place or connect every believer positionally to Christ. So he chose to save everyone who would choose to trust in his son. He then chose to place every believer positionally in Christ or to connect every believer positionally to Christ. And this is the essence of what it means to be a Christ one. To be a Christ one is to be one of Christ, one who has put their faith in Christ. I now become a part of this chosen in Christ. I become a part of the chosen in Christ through faith in Christ's finished work on my behalf, and this is how I would look at it. Imagine that you come to the decision of salvation. Everyone has a decision to make. Imagine that you come to the cross. There's a door in the cross. The door says, you know, you may know the verses, but the door says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. You come to that decision where I either have to put my faith and believe in the finished work of Christ to go through this door. And above that door is an inscription that says, all who will, let them come and drink freely of the water that I offer. All who will, let them come and drink freely from Revelations. So that's what it says. All who will, come. Jesus says, I want everyone to come. Question is, will you walk through that door? That door of faith where you put your trust in Christ? Work on that cross? Now you come through that door, you're greeted with a whole bunch of other people who have already made that choice. You walk into a room filled with believers. You now become a part of something that you weren't before. 
You're now in Christ. You're described positionally as in Christ. You're now a part of the beloved. You, be, you, became, you came into something that you weren't a part of before and you look back at the back side of the door, above the door is an inscription that says chosen in Christ from eternity past, this very passage. You now became a part of something that was corporate, something that was God had determined would be this group of believers that are the body of Christ. You became a part of that. He chose all believers to be in Christ and how do you get in on that? You walk through the door by your, by your choice. Now you're a part of something that God says, I chose every believer, anyone who would put their faith in Christ to be a part of this before the foundation of the world began. Right here from this verse. See, God's elective choice is connected to a functional purpose. See, God had a choice to make here. He chose to place everybody who would believe in Christ, but he did it for a functional purpose. You see, what are those already in Christ chosen for? That's the question. It's not, was I one of the chosen? It's, what is this chosen group of people known as the body of Christ? What are they chosen for? Those that are in Christ, this group of believers collectively, what is the point? So through personal faith, they became a part of this. They became identified positionally as in Christ, but now for what purpose? And that's what this passage is really about. The focus is on every believer's positional standing in Christ and God's plan to use the body of believers corporately for a specific purpose. Now, what does this phrase not mean? It doesn't mean that God chose certain individuals, and I've always, I already touched on that. I want to show you a couple of verses that I think you'd be hard-pressed to deal with if you believe that God chose some for salvation and chose others for condemnation. Look at the screen or look in your Bible at 2 Peter 3, 9. But here's one of them. The Bible says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us. Now, look at what this says. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance, the word metanoia, meaning to change your mind, to quit trusting in yourself or something else, but to change your mind so that you're putting your faith in what God has done for you. How could you deal with this verse specifically? If God had already made it impossible for some people to believe, if they weren't capable of responding, He's not willing that any should perish. He would have been perfectly willing and accepting of that if he already determined that outcome in eternity past. By definition, he would have been accepting of that. He wasn't accepting of that. He came and died on the cross for all of the sins of the world. He's, the Bible says, not for your sins only, but for all of the sins of the world as he's talking to believers. Christ didn't just die for your sins because you're having already had responded to that message, because you responded to it. He didn't just die for your sins. He died for everyone's sins so that anyone who would could put their trust in Jesus Christ. Not just the one that was gifted for faith. The one that had been selected by God. The one who had no choice but to irresistibly respond to God's grace. Or if you even went so far as to believe that God didn't even die for all the sins of the world, he only died for the sins of those who he had picked out in the cosmic lottery at the beginning of time where they won the lottery and they got saved and God only died for their sins because he knew in advance that they're the only ones who would believe. So why would he waste his time dying for the sins of the rest? There are so many passages and so many different angles for why that doesn't make sense. 
That's not what God says. He says, I came to seek and to save all that were lost. I'm not willing that any would perish. Behold the Lamb of God who someone help me out there takes away the sin of the world the cosmos the entire population of the world behold the lamb of god who taketh away the sin of the world it's always a big picture everyone no exclusions so here we have it he's not willing that any should perish here's another one in case you think well he just cherry picked that one here's another great one first timothy 2 3 through 6 for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, what does it say? Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many men? All men. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That right there debunks this idea that there was limited atonement. That Christ only died for the sins of some. He gave himself a ransom for all. Now you're going to have to just completely twist the language around to say it all doesn't mean all. In any event, so we then see this word that. Oh, before that. The other thing this does not mean, so it doesn't mean that God chose some for salvation and others he chose for damnation or condemnation. It also doesn't mean that God predetermined the outcome of personal volition. He didn't predetermine your choice. God did not force your decision. It was not irresistible grace. You had a choice to make. And here's a couple of verses about this. John 5.24 says, Most assuredly I say it to you, he who, so this could be anyone, Anyone who hears my word, now what's your part in it, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. This offer was made to all. Some who heard it chose to believe in it. And that person has passed now from death into life. He now has eternal life available to him. A little bit further in the same section, Jesus says this, He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They were had the right motives, but they they were wrong about it. And these are they which testify of me. But you, he says, are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, if God, if if the doctrine of election as taught by some was correct, that this is something God chose and forced upon you. Could Jesus be saying this to those who are rejecting him? He's writing to religious types of folks who would not accept Christ. And he's saying to them, the issue is that I want you should have had eternal life. You think you have it, but you're not willing to come to me, the source of that life. Not that you're, you're incapable of coming to me. You're not willing to come to me. You see, it's man's will. It's man's choice that determines his destination. It's not God who already determined that for man. Now we have to move on. That, he says, as you look at this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, now we have our purpose statement here, that, what was the purpose for choosing this collective group of believers? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And this identifies God's purpose 
for the church or God's purpose for believers corporately. Now, he's not writing to a single believer here. He's writing to all believers who are now identified as this group who is in Christ. This is my purpose in setting you apart. I chose you for a mission, so the mission is that you would be set apart. Those who would believe, these are God's chosen people, though anyone who would believe, they were chosen to be set apart. That was the mission. And you chose about set apart for what? And that's to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. It's not all in this passage. But you were chosen to be a, a distinct group of people that could be observed by others as being, as being different. God says, I, I chose everyone who would believe to now be a part of this group of people that, that others could look at and say, these people are different. They're, they're not, they're not, they don't fit into this world. They look like tourists. They look like pilgrims who are passing through. They look strange. Christian, the group of collective believers are, are said we're supposed to be strangers and pilgrims that are passing through who don't fit into this world. If you've ever had a tourist from another country come to town, you've ever seen them in town, very often it's not hard to pick them out, right? Let's talk about some of the things that help you do that. They speak a different language. Do you speak a different language as ch- children of God? Are you learning to speak a different way? Now, it's not a different language per se, but isn't it kind of a different language where the things you're focused on are not the things of this world, they're eternal things? The things that you speak about are not the things of this world, they're eternal things? The things that you find value in are not the same kinds of things that the world says have value? If you did that often enough, would people think you were kind of speaking a different language? Would they start to kind of see that you don't really belong here? Oh, they wouldn't see that in me. I fit right in. (laughs) Other ways you could identify a tourist, but you get the point. That's how God wants us to be. To be set apart in a way that is distinct. You see that here in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now, that was true of the nation of Israel, and Peter may, in fact, be writing to dispersed Jewish believers. But there's an application here for the church, too. The church was chosen to be set apart. The nation of Israel is chosen to be set apart. For what purpose, though? Here's your purpose right here. Now, he doesn't finish the thought here, but he's, he's just telling them every believer was chosen to be a part of this set-apart group that would accomplish some mission. And here's the mission, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's your mission. Man, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. It's right here, friend. You were called to proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what does that look like? You know what? It's going to look a little bit different for you than it does for me, but it's the same basic mission. It's living to lift him up, enjoying life with him, not excluding him from my life. And you see how this ends? It ends with this phrase, in love, in love. It indicates that God's loving disposition toward believers should accompany or be reflected in their underlying mission to be set apart. As you're trying to be set apart, you're doing it in love. 
the cloak over all of this, the umbrella over all of this is love. It's love that we learn from God because he was the only source of true, selfless, sacrificial love. We learn that from him. Then that kind of love through the power of his spirit should be produced in us as we let him lead and direct in our lives to give us lives that would be set apart, that would proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into the glorious light. You see how one just connects to the next? And then we move on to verse 5 here. Not only did he call the collective group of believers to be set apart, to be different. That's the idea there. God chose us, he called us collectively to be different, to be distinct so that we could fulfill the mission. What else did he do? Well, the next thing it says he did, having predestined us, again plural, us as believers, not us individually, to adoption as sons, again sons, plural, all believers, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. See, all of this is intertwined and connected. The order is not the focus. God chose to give us a mission. He chose to set us apart corporately. He chose to bless us with every spiritual blessing and in Christ, in heavenly places in Christ. He put us positionally in Christ. He had this design to adopt us as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And this idea of predestined, it simply means to plan in advance, to have a plan in advance. God's plan in advance was to adopt as sons anyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ so that we would become sons of God. We would become a part of the family of God. That was God's plan in advance, to adopt us to be his sons. Just like he determined in advance to bless us with every spiritual blessing, just like he determined in advance to call us to a purpose, call us to a specific mission, to give us a specific mission and a specific purpose of being set apart and proclaiming him. That's all this means. See, God's eternal plan for mankind provided for a method by which those estranged from him could become full-fledged sons and beneficiaries of the associated inheritance, which he gets into later in this passage. It's not just to become sons for no reason. God made a plan in advance to make it possible through the work of Christ and our faith in the finished work of Christ for us to be adopted into his family, to become sons of God so that we could benefit from all the blessings that are associated with being his child. That's really the idea here. You see, in Roman times, adoption represented the legal process for formally recognizing a child as an adult son who was entitled to a full share of the inheritance. In, in Roman times, it was a pretty perverse and loose society, very immoral society. Many men had many sons through many women's. Not all of them were adopted sons, though. They were not all recognized formally as sons. Some people think this is about adopting a son who's not yours. In the Roman culture, this is actually not what that's about. It's actually about formally recognizing a son as a child, I should say, as a son who is now entitled to all the benefits that come from the father having recognized him officially. Now, the fathers didn't do that with all of the children. They chose to formally go through this legal process at, when the child became an adult for the sons that they favored, not, not all sons. And so he, God, looked at the mass of humanity and everyone who was associated with Christ, he says, this is now my child. 
I'm going to formally recognize them as my child. They're going to now benefit from all the blessings that come from being my child. You see, by Jesus Christ, it indicates the agent or the means of accomplishing this adoption. How did God adopt us? He adopted us by Jesus Christ. How do you become, how, do, how did that happen? Well, Jesus Christ paid your debt. How do you get a hold of that? How do you become identified positionally with him? You have to accept it. You have to accept the gift that he offered you and place your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment that happens, you become adopted. I'm adopted, Hallelujah. I've got a new life now. Now, it ends with according to the good pleasure of his will, and that just means that God was doing or doing this was God's desire. God desired to do this. He didn't have to, but he desired to do this, and it pleased him. Now we come to verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What was the result of him having done this? Is it should have produced praise to the glory about what? Praise of his glory based on his grace. It's by his grace that he made us accepted in the beloved. So the believer who recognizes the magnitude of God's gracious dealings with him naturally responds with a heart of praise. That should be your response. I recognize how amazing God's provision for me was, how gracious he's been with me, and that should give me a heart of praise. When we see that word grace, it means unmerited favor, meaning God bestows on believers grace or something they don't deserve, and that is indeed glorious. See, I'm bringing glory to God. I'm saying, to God be the glory because he's shown so much grace to me. And his grace was freely given. There's no, there's no other way to have grace. For it to be grace, it has to be freely given. It has to be freely received. For it to be grace, it can't have any strings attached to it. I can't do anything to lose it if it's going to be given to me by grace. A gift can't be a gift if it's not freely given and freely received. It can't be a gift if there's strings attached to it. And so it's freely given by God's grace. It was a free gift, not something we could earn or deserve. And without God's grace, think about what we faced. Because this is all about how my identity changed. Remember, I went from being in Adam. This is the greatest passage about now my new identity, my new position in Christ. Everything changed. Factually, I was in Adam. Now factually, because of my faith in the work of Christ, I'm in Christ positionally. I'm in Christ. I'm adopted. I'm God's child. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have access to this great wealth. And the question is, will I appropriate it? Will I live in light of it? Will I live like the son I am? Or will I live like something I'm not? I was this. I was in Adam. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I'm now in Christ. I've been made alive. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Will I live like it? Now, is it possible to be this child but not live like a child? Act like I have no heavenly father. Act like I have no blessing. Act like I have no treasure. And keep living like I'm something I'm not. I'm not lost anymore. I'm found. I'm alive now. I'm not dead. Am I going to appropriate that by faith? Am I going to use that in a way that would actually take advantage of the blessings that I have? See, without God's grace, we had no hope. We had no future. We had no purpose for living. But we got all of that when we became identified and placed. We were placed in Christ. How? By faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now you say, by which? It refers back to grace. And it, indica- it indicates the basis or the means for God making us believers or accepted in the beloved. By which? 
meaning because of God's grace, we were made accepted in the beloved. Now, this word beloved, it refers to Christ. Most or a bunch of translations actually take this word beloved. It actually means the one God loves. It's capitalized because most take the position that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. So I, this is about my identity. It's because of God's grace that I've, be, I've been made, accepted, in the one God loves. Remember, in Christ, the topic of our message. This is about my positional identity. It's only because of God's grace that I can be identified in the one God loves. Isn't that beautiful? I'm identified, I'm positionally standing in the shoes of the one that God loves, who is his only son, Jesus Christ. Yet another reference to our identity. See, God graciously, graciously accepts us, though we don't deserve it, now that we are identified positionally with his dearly loved son. God's favor to us is realized by our union with Christ. And how did we become in Christ? By faith. He who believes is not condemned. He who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that I become a believer. I become a child. I become adopted. I become blessed with every spiritual blessing. I become a part of the called out ones, the church of Christ that God has assigned a mission to be set apart and to proclaim his goodness. You see, in Christ, identity matters. That's our whole focus here this morning. We didn't get through a lot, but in these verses, in Christ, this isn't about getting saved. This is about the position that every believer has in Christ. Your identity matters. It signifies the very essence of who you are. It's a fixed fact. It's not about how you feel. It's not subject to interpretation. You are either in Christ or you're in Adam. It's a position. It's an identity. It's who you are. Now the question is, are you going to live in a manner that's consistent with who you are. See, by default, you are associated with your position in Adam, with the separation and estrangement from God that accompanies that identity. This passage is about how God graciously undertook to make a change of identity possible. Now, thankfully, he didn't make it difficult or conditioned on you or your effort. He conditioned your adoption as a son on nothing more than simple faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your very identity changes. You now become in Christ. You now become a son of God. And you now have access to all of those spiritual blessings. Is that amazing truth or what? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing truth about the believers standing in Christ. And how the moment of their faith, they become a part of something they never were before. They now become a part of the body of Christ as they're now identified as being in Christ. Not because of something that they've done, but because of their faith in what you've done for them. Not because they have any merit or they deserve it any more than anyone else, but because they made a decision to accept the salvation that you wish all men would accept, that you came to offer to all men. Pray that we would see that we need to have a burden for those who have not yet put their confidence and trust in Jesus Christ so that they could get in on this life-saving message, that they could then become your children too, be called sons of God, that they could be adopted, that they could be blessed with every spiritual blessing. Pray that we would have a burden and a heart for the lost. Pray that with fellow believers we would see that we're a part of this chosen, set-apart church 
this body of Christ, just like the nation of Israel, corporately, not individually, corporately was chosen to be a set-apart nation. So the church is chosen corporately to be set apart from the rest of the world so that the world could see Jesus through us as a body of believers who have a common faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that these things would have been clear. Pray even that you would undertake for the rest of our days that we would use them in a way that would bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.